This is Stories of Win, where we showcase amazing women in neuroscience. We chat with them about their research, their unique journeys through academia, and what drives their passion for studying the brain. Here is one of their stories. This is Megan with Stories of Win, and today I'm really excited to be sitting down with Dr. Yan Wang, who is an incoming assistant professor in the departments of psychology and biology at the University of Washington. So thanks, Yan, so much for taking the time to chat with me today. Thank you so much. I'm really excited that we are able to connect. Yeah, me too. I can't wait to hear all about your exciting research and the journey um, you've been taking <laughs> all along the way. <laughs> um, and so to get us started, I'd love to hear you know, how and when you first became interested in science generally, as well as neuroscience in particular. Mm, sure. I think um, ever since I was in grade school, I was really interested in science because the way that the classes were taught, the way that I was able to interact with the material, it made me really curious about the world around me. And I think um, the rules <laughs> of the courses were easy for me to understand. And so I guess what I mean by that is that, you know, as an immigrant, when you are in a new environment, the rules, you know, the social rules, um, the kind of cultural rules, those are things that are really challenging to understand. But mm. it felt um, straightforward to me in science because um, things were tested and supported. And so you could kind of um, you could kind of lean into that. And I think that the way that. I'm not saying that I'm a supporter of this type of education, but I think that <laughs> yeah. I think the way that the testing, um, you know, occurred for me as a young um, student, they were easy to understand um, uh, hoops to jump through, if you will, um, and it made a lot yeah. more sense than kind of trying to figure out everything else. So I think from <laughs> a young age, I was really, really interested in science, um, and. I was really interested in language and storytelling um, because, again, as an immigrant, that is a way of getting a toehold in the new environment that you're in. And so all of those things kind of um, intersected when I was in college, um, and I think I was kind of able to explore those interests in greater depth. Yeah, that's really interesting. Did you, so you immigrated as a child to the U.S.? Yeah, um, exactly. I was born in China and I immigrated as a really young child and started um, uh, primary school here and moved around a bunch um, as a kid. And, um, you know, that always has its own uh, unique set of challenges. Um, and then uh, my family settled in the Northeast uh, which is still where I am right now. <laughs> <laughs> For a little bit, I guess, at least. Right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's really interesting, though, thinking about the, yeah, the challenges and the um, the sort of obtuse, unspoken rules <laughs> outside of the mm -hmm. classroom and then the um, advantages or appeal of having some more rules inside of the classroom. Um so then you said in, in college, um, you were still interested in science. Could you take us through then, you know, sort of how that those interests further developed and maybe a particular interest in 
you know, I know your your work is very interdisciplinary, interdisciplinary, and and we're going to come back to that. Um, but you know how your particular interests in you know biology, evolutionary biology, and neuroscience kind of came about, and um, how you decided to to go on to graduate school and pursue research. Sure. Um... I was fortunate enough that when I entered college, I didn't have to declare a major, and I was in an arts and sciences. I was in the College of Arts and Sciences at Cornell, um, where I felt, especially as a first-year student, I could explore a lot of different courses, and that really allowed me to just lean into the things that I liked doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I declared the English major because um, I took a really transformative course. Um, Intro to Asian American Literature, which was taught by Dr. Shelley Wong. And I think it was the first time that I felt I had a vocabulary and a framework and a perspective for, um, or, you know, a, a vocabulary and a framework and a perspective that put words to the experiences um, that I had growing up in this country. And it was so it was not only, you know, world affirming, but I think it was really transformative for me as a scholar because it was not just about turning inward, but also turning outward, which mm. I think as scientists, too, is an exercise that we do all the time, whether it's in pursuing the questions that we want to pursue or communicating our science to others. Um, yeah, so I, after taking this course, I became really interested in um, pursuing post-colonial literature to pursuing um, literature written by women. And I became really fascinated by um, the concept of, or the themes and motifs of female reproduction in literature. Oh, and yeah. Yeah. Um, And at the end of, you know, my first year of college, I think it was, um, I knew I wanted to stay on campus for the summer, and I knew that meant that I needed a job. <laughs> and so <laughs> I found a job um, in as a research assistant in an entomology lab. Um, this is a lab of Dr. Jennifer Taylor at Cornell. Um, and it, it was just such a great summer. You know, I, hmm. I, I went after the job because it was a paid undergraduate yeah. position that enabled me to do research and to do um, field work in in Ithaca, which is just you know mm-hmm. in the summer is such a blessing, um, oh, yeah. and I think from there my research interests really developed, um, and I ended up joining. Um, so I I declared the biology major, um, and I ended up joining the lab of Dr. Ned Place at Cornell Veterinary School, um, and he studied female reproductive aging. And so hmm. I was able to kind of look at this one theme or this one concept, this one idea that really intrigued me um, and still continues to intrigue me to this day. And I could, I felt like I could turn it over with, you know, different lenses on, you know, um, looking at it from both a both um, a historical and literary perspective, as well as a scientific um, experimental perspective. Oh, that's, yeah, that's so cool that your like, your English major actually sort of inspired your, your, um, yeah, your biological interests. And and you maintained that English major as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, that's really cool. 
Yeah, I think it was really critical to my development as a scholar because it led to a deeper understanding of myself and kind of, you know, not only how I show up in the world, but how I can, um, how my unique positioning allows me to um, look at the world in a particular way. And that includes, you know, everything around us, including um, things and phenomena that we're interested in, in testing and studying. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. Um, <laughs> what were, just out of curiosity, these, you mm-hmm. said you did this first, um, you know, research, summer paid summer research position, which by the way, I can't tell you how many times we've heard from people we've interviewed that like they mm-hmm. were just looking for a job and then that mm-hmm. was how they got into research. So again, sort of underlines the importance of these paid positions. Um, right. But, but yeah, well, like what kind of field work were you doing there? And then you said your next um, experience after that, you, you first got to start looking at um, female reproduction. What like model organisms was, was that in as well? Yeah. So um, Dr. Thaler's lab, um, she's a chemical ecologist. And that summer we were studying predator-prey interactions between um, ladybugs and aphids, um, as well oh. as between um, manduka sexta uh, caterpillars and uh, the tomato plants that they eat. So oh. <laughs> it was so much fun. And yeah, I wasn't, you know... Awesome. Yeah, I wasn't doing my own project by any means. Um, I was assisting on, on other projects that were ongoing in the lab, but I loved just being out outside, um, you know, counting. I remember like counting bugs in the rain and <laughs> it was, it was really, um, I think it was, it was very formative because mm-hmm. I think as, I think like, you know, especially when we were young and folks growing up in the 90s, you know, we got fed this idea of like, if you work hard, you can succeed. And there's a certain there's a certain uh, truth in that in science, right? Because there's a certain Mm -hmm. amount of like, okay, if you don't understand the Krebs cycle, like maybe if you look at it 10 more times, like you could get there, right? Yeah. Um, So there's that like grit and determination. I don't love those words, but there's that aspect to science. But I think working in the Thaler lab for that summer also just showed me how fun doing research can be Mm. and how much joy there can be in, you know, observing your animals. Um, I think that's probably where I got my first, um, where my interest in animal behavior kind of, Mm. uh, was, yeah, kind of where that took off. Um, and then I think you asked me about, uh, the, the second lab that I was in. Yeah, I was yeah. asking because you, you said you, you know, from your um, this first like transformative literature class, you kind of particularly got interested in in female reproduction, and then in that second research experience, you actually got to study that in in laboratory context, right? Mm-hmm. So I was curious what like model organisms that was in a little bit more about that. <laughs> yeah, um, the place lab at the time studied hamsters, um, Siberian hamsters, mm-hmm. as the model organism because they have this um, really cool and natural ability to uh, either delay or accelerate um, sexual maturation depending on when in the year they are born. Um, and oh, um, my question that I was interested in studying that I eventually um, pursued was whether or not the state of reproductive, the age that you're at 
So sorry, let me say that again. So whether you're, if you are reproductively older, if that also influences neurogenesis. Um, so kind of looking at the intersection between reproductive age um, or state and uh, biological age or state, um, as well as neurogenesis. And um, neurogenesis of the infant brain or the adult brain? No, looking uh, in the hippocampus of the adult brain. Gotcha. Yeah. And I think, you know, as a lot of senior projects, there's a lot of um, enthusiasm and um, <laughs> maybe fewer results. Um, <laughs> That's okay. Um, uh, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Particularly at that stage. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, also an important lesson to learn. Um, but I, I think that's kind of actually how I got into neuroscience because I had never really thought mm. about the brain before, you know? I see. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, and so it was kind of my entryway into the brain. And I think thinking about female reproduction, thinking about central nervous systems, that's still something that I'm interested in um, to this day. Yeah, absolutely. And we're definitely going to come back to that. Um, so at that point, then, like coming out of your undergraduate, um, you know, it sounds like you had, you know, many interests, both in biology as well as in English. You know, how did you um, or what led you to decide to pursue graduate school um, in biology then? Oh, man, it was so hard. <laughs> it was so hard. And I yeah, don't know. I imagine if... <laughs> you sound like someone who was maybe considering like five very different paths. <laughs> uh-huh. Right, right. It's like, I mean, I think this is true for everyone, right? But if you throw the dice again, I don't know that you would get the same yeah. outcome. Um, let's see. So I was graduating into the recession and mm. our... Yeah, I'm thinking, was it the recession or was it the housing crisis? I like, can't remember anymore. Um, but <laughs> those definitely say, blend together in my head. I know. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. So you know, there was a, there was a certain lack of. I, here's what I remember: there was a certain lack of optimism that accompanied yeah. those graduating in my year for the future. Right? A certain lack of optimism about the future. And I remember amongst my friends, like multiple of my friends, you know, we thought. Eh, maybe we shelter it out in grad school for a while, right? Um, mm. And I had been, um, I was entertaining, you know, going to vet school. I was working at a wildlife sanctuary um, with, with a wonderful neuroethologist. And mm. um, so getting really, really curious about natural animal behaviors. At the same time, um, getting deeper and deeper into my into my humanities degree, Um I declared the ethnic studies minor. So Mm. I was, you know, really um, like living day to day as a, as a humanities student Mm. as well. Um, And I took a class again with Dr. Shelley Wong, um, as well as with Dr. Derek Chang um, called race in the university. And Mm. it was the first time they taught the class. um, And it was a fantastic class that, looked at the function of the American university through American history um, and looked at the role of the American university in different kind of social projects or, or social technologies. And um, it was the first time that I thought about the university that I was so entrenched in 
um, and different power dynamics um, and nationalism and, and things like that. Huh. Um, but the class was eye-opening because I think it made me realize that I, if I stayed in academia, you, you then enter a certain positionality within the university that gives you a certain amount of power that could be very useful if the American university is something that you believe in. And, um, you know, we looked at public schools, we looked at, um, you know, private research institutions um, and kind of the history and foundation and maintenance of them. Um, and I have to say, like, that class, as much as we criticized um, the institution we were a part of, as much as we, like, really looked, took a hard look at the unmaking of public universities across America, I think to me, it felt like, okay, I think I could have a, a, a home here, you know, intellectually, mm. emotionally. Like, I think just certain qualities about my personality and my, my, my likes and dislikes and things like that, I, it was one of the first times that I could see myself being a professor. That's really interesting. So you say, so, cause yeah, I think I forget exactly how you phrased it, but the, um, you know, that like you could have a lot of power in the, you know, that could be taken both a, a positive and a negative way. Right. But it sounds like right. you, you, but you're saying that you basically came away, like, absolutely, you know, criticizing the university. Absolutely. There are a lot of, you know, um, things to take issue with or things that need to be approved. But like, if you're actually thinking about those things and, um, you know, aware of, aware of all that, you could actually have a lot of power to do good. Is that sort of what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. Let me unpack that a little because I, I, I see where you're coming from, too. Um, so as an example, you know, we looked at the um, the student strikes and the student movements of the 60s and 70s in mm. California and looked at how action between students as well as um, from those within the university, um, a.k.a., you know, professors, lecturers, teachers, how that led to entire movements, mm. you know, social movements. Um, and I think that that moment kind of clicked for me, right? Mm. Is that you you need to, um, you know, when you're outside of institutions, of course, like you uh, can take a critical lens of them. But also when you're within institutions, it's important to ask more of them as well because these institutions are nothing without us. Yeah, that's really cool and really interesting. I wish I could take that class. That sounds awesome. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's an incredible, yeah. And, and I think they're still teaching it every other year and it's it's really, really um, an incredible class. But I think that's what I mean when I say power is that yeah. if you have positionality within the university, and the thing is all of us within the university have a certain amount of power, right? Mm -hmm. um, but we don't all have the same. Our voices aren't all weighed right. equally. Um, and if you are in a position where maybe you have more autonomy, more freedom to act um, in a way that you feel pushes the university closer to progress, um, then then you get to do that. <laughs> and that's super yeah, cool, I think. Yeah, you know? totally. 
I think that's super cool. Yeah, that's so interesting. And and yeah, I definitely want to, I think we'll come back to some of those themes as we talk about like, you know, you um, starting your own position upcoming, but but to kind of continue the the chronological um, journey for now. So, um, so it sounds like then you decided to go to grad school, really kind of with the idea of you know, that wanting to be a professor someday. Is, is that yeah. accurate to say? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and um, at that time, you had to take the GREs um, yeah. to, to go to grad school. And the English GREs are a beast um, because you could be asked on pretty much anything ever published in the English language. Oh. <laughs> okay, so I... those like subject tests or whatever. The, exactly. For the <laughs> yeah, did you take those? They I were didn't, so... no. Because, oh yeah, I, I remember at least... Um, when I was starting graduate school, at least for neuroscience and psychology programs, I also applied for, you really only needed the, the general GRE, um, not so the good. subject test, but so for English. So at that point, were you still considering possibly English graduate school? Mm-hmm. Yeah, very strongly, very strongly, mm. in fact, um, because there were, I mean, you know, there were intellectual projects that I was interested in. Yeah. Um, and but I think, you know, a few things, I think like, I, I felt like, um, so one, the GREs just totally scared the crap out of me. <laughs> and, and I will say that even the, I eventually took, I think it was the ecology and evolution, maybe, um, subject GREs. And I, I broke out in hives in the middle of them because I was like, oh, no. I don't remember learning about the layers of the earth's crust uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, and things like that. But, yeah. um, yeah. And I think also I felt, um, yeah, at the time I felt like I, I would still be happy going down this path. Um, and, uh, and that I think, you know, one really cool thing about science that is different from the humanities is that in addition to thinking about the things that we're interested in and doing, doing, you know, literature reviews on them and formulating your own ideas about them in science, you can take action to test them. Um, and that gave a kind of, that scratches a different intellectual itch. Um, Mm. and so I was, I, I applied to graduate schools. I applied to, Gosh, um, animal behavior programs, ecology and evolution programs, um, neuroscience programs. Um, yeah, all, all over and uh, ended up at UChicago. And that program was in neurobiology, right? That's right. Cool. So yeah, could you, um, let's dive into that then, because you did some really cool, exciting research there. Could you tell us a little bit about um, what you were working on, what you were working on there with the octopus, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I was coming from um, a research background where I was interested in in female reproduction and I was really interested in animal behavior. And during my interview, I met this guy named Cliff Ragsdale, who I had never heard of before. And he studied octopus and I was like you know in the midst of all my interviews I was just I think I barely had any energy and I was just like that's cool (laughs) Um, (laughs) and and he was interested in kind of bringing a behavioral component to the work in octopuses Mm um and so it was um I think it just made a a lot of sense and I think Cliff was also just um, a really great mentor for 
my um, academic and personal growth. But we were able to kind of merge our our interests, like him as a, a you know, a, a, an evolutionary neuroscientist, and, and me as someone who was interested in reproduction and behavior. Um, and I was able to look at this phenomenon that had been known um, about in the field for a long time, but we just knew very little about. And that is the fact that Almost all octopuses die immediately after they reproduce, um, and they die in really spectacular fashion. Um, so it's not a kind of slow petering out, but it's an active um, programmed death. Oh, interesting. Yeah, could you? So yeah, could you actually like explain that a little more? Because I know. So I, I'll, I guess I'll say, and maybe like our listeners had similar experiences. I didn't like know about the like the octopus death. The whole thing until um, yeah. the my octopus teacher, oh, right? Yeah. <laughs> the, the, the documentary, um, and then I was a listen. I then like went back and listened to the Radio Lab episode that you were on, which is very oh, cool. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, could you like? What do you mean? Like, um, exactly by this like spectacular death because at least sort of what I took away from that was like they basically um, and, and yeah I'll let you explain in more detail but um, after they give birth right they just kind of stop eating they're like f- totally focused on their eggs so you know that could be taken for me not studying this at all that that is more of like a withering away but you're saying that it was it's actually um, something a lot more than that could you could you explain that a little bit more yeah, absolutely. Um, and sorry, I didn't mean to imply that you should have known about this. <laughs> I no. meant like, yeah, yeah, sorry, sorry. No, no, I didn't know about it at all either when, you know, Cliff was telling me about this. And I remember being like, I don't have the energy to convey how excited I am about this right now. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, um, but, but, but yeah, so, um, so octopuses, um, they mate once in their lives and the females can store the sperm until they're ready to lay their eggs. And they find a nice safe spot, um, usually a sheltered ledge, um, or in our case, you know, kind of like a terracotta flower pot um, base. <laughs> um, and then they, they lay their eggs. Um, and that is, that kind of marks the beginning of the end for these, um, these female octopuses. So they, they spend all of their time taking care of their eggs. They're just really um, steadfast um, mothers in that sense. They are cleaning the eggs, they're protecting the eggs, um, and they never leave the den. They never leave their eggs, not even to eat. Um, wow. But as, yeah, um, and as the maternal period continues, um, she eventually uh, abstains from eating. And and then she enters this very peculiar but totally natural state um, in which she just undergoes extremely rapid physiological decline. So whole body decline, um, loss of color, loss of muscle tone. And then I think, you know, most strikingly, or I think one of the most intriguing things are these behavioral changes. So this includes self-cannibalism and self-injury. And oh, so wow. a lot of the animals, they either use their suckers and they create lesions on their mantle, um, oh, wow. which, uh, yeah, um, or the or the, the webbing between their arms. Um, a lot of individuals will eat their own arms, starting from the tips, or they'll eat rows of suckers. Um, they 
will engage in behaviors that uh, in the open in the ocean would draw attention to them. So, for example, they would leave the den, spend a lot of time outside of the den, kind of ambulating around or um, over grooming, which is this behavior where their arms kind of go into this like really like turbid state of of curling and, and unfurling and 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 um, and, um, and you know, they also swim into really hard objects that causes them to create these wounds that don't seem to heal um, on their bodies. And so it's an active, uh, it's an active programmed death. Um, so all these behaviors eventually lead to death. And it's active and programmed because they're all controlled by a part of the nervous system. Mm-hmm. Um, and that part of the nervous system is called the optic gland. And it's the neuroendocrine center of the octopus. And when the optic gland is removed from brooding females, so females that have laid eggs, all of those behaviors go away, including death. So all of those, you know, the, the uh, maternal care goes away, the animal starts eating again, the animal might mate again, um, and she lives longer. So her, you know, her lifespan is extended with that removal of the optic gland. Um, and, and so Cliff kind of laid out this, you know, phenomena for me that other cephalopod researchers have known about, um, but very little in the literature pointed to mechanisms of function, mechanisms of action by the optic gland. Um, and it was just, it was a very tantalizing research question. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's so fascinating. <laughs> I can imagine being, yeah, the interviewee too. And just like, whoa. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Wow. So, um, yeah, I have so many questions, but I don't want to get too bogged down. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, could you, could you tell us like basically what you found? What did you well, I know from reading your work, but so you did find some of these mechanisms, is that right? Could you explain a little bit about what you found? Yeah, so I was lucky that at the time I was in graduate school, um, this is when a lot of new tools were being developed for cephalopods. And so I was, you know, another wonderful part of joining the Ragsdale Lab is getting to work with um, closely with my colleague, Dr. Carrie Alberton. Um, um, who was leading the Octopus Genome Project when I first started. And that oh, really cool. opened the avenue yeah. for studying all these mechanisms. Um, so we sequenced the optic glands of females that were at these different stages of adult life. So, you know, unmated and then mated but and laid eggs, but still eating, um, you know, or mothers that are now fasting and then mothers that are at this um, late senescence stage, which we call decline. Um, and then we did differential uh, expression of the genes. And we found to our surprise that there were um, many different classes of signaling factors that were modulated, um, either up or down regulated in the optic glands kind of throughout the end of life. And so this pointed to the idea that there was, um, that the optic gland, you know, it's not just a single secretion, it's not a simple organ that its um, anatomy maybe suggests, but instead it kind of um, generates an entire array of signaling factors that are active um, at the end of life. And these include steroids, neuropeptides, um, insulin-like signaling factors, as well as um, catecholamines. Um, so this was super exciting because finally, you know, you have a cast of characters. Mm. Um, <laughs> um, and, and, and so that was that was great. 
Yeah, that's so cool. And then is the idea because yeah, I and I I definitely didn't know. It's super interesting that these like kind of multiple stages of this this decline from the you know um, not eating to then this more act the more active decline process is the thought that then now that you like extracted all these different like signaling factors, maybe you could start to tease apart, you know, their different like contributions to these different stages of the, of the decline. Is that like one possible direction you're thinking of taking or, you know, what, what can you kind of do now knowing like these different signaling factors that you found? Yeah, no, that's absolutely, um, you know, a route to go down and especially thinking about, you know, um, functions. So uh, the forever impossible goal in in biology about linking, you know, a gene to behavior, um, you know, I still, of course, it's it's so much more complicated than that. But I think um, if ever it was possible in cephalopods, it is it is now that it is becoming possible. Um, But but I think, you know, once you know the once you understand the genomic and transcriptomic makeup, um, an entire world opens for you, right? So in model organisms, you wouldn't be able to uh, directly test function, knock-ins or knockouts without understanding, you know, without identifying these uh, really important uh, genes. Uh, uh, yeah, but so I think also, you know, having identified all these different signaling systems, of course, the idea is that, okay, well, so maybe um, certain classes are responsible for certain aspects of the of the maternal period and of senescence. Um, you know, we can understand more the biochemistry or the biosynthesis of all these different systems and ultimately get at, um, you know, how the organization, the neurochemical organization um, of the nervous system generates and maintains this uh almost unbelievable like life phenomenon yeah so cool um yeah awesome and i think again we'll we'll come back to a little bit about that but but now i'm curious so kind of coming out of graduate school then you chose to go on to a postdoc um which i understand you studied primarily bumblebees um so mm-hmm. how did um how did you make kind of that decision to well, i guess first question at that point were you still like, yes, I want to continue on this academic path. I want to be a professor, um, and thus would like to do a postdoc along that route. Um, and second, mm-hmm. how did you decide to then study bumblebees um, in the lab that you settled in? Yeah, I think I, I knew that I wanted to do a postdoc. Um, I think you know, maybe the nobler thing to say is like, I loved research and I, I wanted to go down this path, but also to a certain extent, you know, inertia brings you there too. Um, <laughs> and, sure. and that's not a bad thing either. Right. Yeah. Um, but I think everything that happens at the end of your, um, everything that happens kind of at the end of your PhD, uh, it can be a lot. And so, um, and so I was, I was pretty set on doing a postdoc. Um, and as I was finishing up my thesis in octopuses, I think, um, the one kind of dissatisfi- dissatisfying thing I found about working in octopuses at the end of my PhD was that I was, you know, really interested in animal behaviors and I was really interested in social behaviors and octopuses are, are solitary and mm. they're highly cannibalistic. So, um, you know, maternal care of the eggs is about as rich as their social behaviors mm. get in this particular species that I was studying. 
So, you know, I was just, I, I think I was just, um, I was really, really keen on studying, um, much more complex systems of social behaviors and staying within invertebrates, um, because I thought invertebrates were just fascinating. Um, and so I think I just did the obvious thing where I just like, you know, turned my head completely around and I was <laughs> like, well, what invertebrates have, um, have really complex social behaviors. And those are the, the social insects. Um, so, you know, wasps, ants, um, and, and bees. And so I, I kind of took a limited geographic, um, search for my postdoc. Um, I wanted to, um, be back in the Northeast again. And, um, I wanted to work in the lab of somebody who was, um, more junior, um, so that mm-hmm. I could kind of see how it was done. And I think at that time I was thinking if I can see how it's done, then maybe I would know for sure if it was for me. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, Cool. So could you tell us a little bit then about, um, you know, the lab that you did join with Sarah Kocher? Is that right? Um, Coker. Coker. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And then the work that that you've been doing in your postdoc. Sure. Yeah. So the Coker lab is interested in the evolution of sociality and taking um, different approaches to it from um uh, evolutionary approaches to population genomics, um, to quantitative behavior. And again, like I really wanted to get deeper at, um, behavior and I had some, uh, some skills in, in transcriptomics and bioinformatics and things like that. But I think the power of, of bumblebees is just how rich their social behaviors were. And I think the, an open question that existed is, um, you know, how does early life experiences, how do early life experiences influence social behaviors in an obligately social animal? Mm. Um, and this is something that is, was really not well teased apart in bumblebees, which compared to honeybees, um, are just not as, um, they're just not as well studied, um, mm. I think honeybees have always had this um, agricultural importance to humans, um, uh, yeah. and and bumblebees do too, for sure. As you know, as pollinators, um, but this particular area of understanding, you know, how does early life influence sociality and development and things like that that was unexplored and so it was really exciting to me because it was almost the inverse of what I was doing as a graduate student you know looking at the beginning of life um and looking at the development of behaviors um and the development of the brain rather than the you know decline um, of the organism and the decline of the nervous system but I think the thing is, you know, whenever you're studying death, you are always thinking about life and early life. Um, and so the things, you know, the, the two kind of went hand in hand for me. Yeah, um, that's kind of a beautiful like bookend of, <laughs> of um, yeah, from your PhD to to postdoc. That's cool. So yeah. So then, what did what did you find then? As the impact, um, were you you? Well, I understand you were you know isolating bumblebees and doing in early life, and then what did mm-hmm. you find um, were the consequences of that later in life? Yeah. So um, we we took newly eclosing, so newly emerging um, bumblebees, and we gave them 
um, one of three different treatments. So either we allowed them to uh, kind of grow up as normally as possible in their colonies, um, or we put them in small groups, um, so in groups of four, or we raise them in complete social isolation devoid of um, social cues. And we actually started this project before COVID, um, but of course yeah. it went into COVID. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then Very that was timely. one of, yeah, it was one of those funny, you know, like, uh, is it life imitates art slash, you know, yeah. life imitates science or science imitates life um, type things. But no, I've, I felt really fortunate to get to study the bees um, during uh, during my postdoc and as well as during pandemic, because I know that so many researchers, you know, called entire colonies or had to get rid of entire lines. Um, and the bumblebees were really great because they more or less take care of themselves. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah. Um, but um, that's a slight tangent. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so we, so we, we had them in these three different treatment groups um, and we, we reared them that way um, for nine days, which is that the period of early life and over which they experience a lot of plasticity in, the, in their nervous systems. And then on the 10th day, we either um, let them experience uh, like a social dyad, so a, a paired assay, um, or we, um, sorry, on the 10th day, they all then experienced a social assay, um, and then we collected their nervous systems, their brains, either for... For uh, like confocal analysis or for transcriptomics, and um, you know overall, like the the bumblebee system was so powerful because it's so tractable, and you can start to get really, really close to being able to tie, you know, behavior and brain development and. Um, gene regulation or whatever it is that you're interested in, you're, you're, you're getting really, really close to being able to, to access these different facets in a single individual. Um, and I think that's super, super cool. Um, but overall, what we found is that, you know, unlike a lot of other animals that have been studied, um, you know, via social isolation assays, um, the bees don't get more aggressive. Um, so, in fact, if anything, they attempt to be more social um, as measured by, you know, proximity to other bees or attempts at grooming um, or, um, sorry, not attempts at grooming, um, um, antenating on another individual. Um, and so that was really interesting because it, it demonstrated that, I think it demonstrated to me a subtlety, right? So we're not just looking at kind of classic paradigms of behavior, like aggression, arousal, mating, things mm -hmm. like that. But what the bees showed us is that we need to really think about what is the appropriate social behavior in the appropriate social context. Um, and I think that was a subtler, but more intriguing and more important um, point to the, to the study. Yeah, that's really interesting. So is that thinking that, or is, is your thinking that it's something you know, comparing to some of these other studies and other species where social isolation has been shown to increase aggressiveness, is you're thinking that it's something about the the bees being a particularly social species to begin with, that they are somehow you know predisposed to or you know, that 
that that that could be the source of the difference in effect of of isolation. Mm -hmm. I think that is um, a really exciting possibility and that more studies on different social insects that are directly targeting that question would be needed before we could conclude that. I think um, more than that, I think um, it highlighted the importance of something called social competency. So just knowing uh, when is the right time to, you know, play the right cards, essentially. Mm. Um, and that the thing that's really cool about the bumblebees, and I think this gets at your question, too, is that, you know, because they are social, maybe there's something um, that is in their neurobiology, that, you know, because social behaviors are so important to the survival of an individual um it's possible that these bees um, kind of maintain almost uh, uh, um, like a socially tolerant um, behavioral profile later yeah. in life, even if they don't have that same social experience early in life. Yeah, so exactly. Think, that's yeah. like that's yeah. what I was saying. That's well said. <laughs> yeah, no, no. I, I think it's such a great. I think it's such a great theme, and it fits with so much. You know what you suggested, and I think that that's um, that would be a really exciting research avenue to go down. I think the idea of social competency is really interesting and especially thinking like in the context of humans and the pandemic, <laughs> like, yeah. um, I mean, maybe it's a, it's a bit of a stretch, but just thinking about like, I know I at least, and I think many other people had a sort of weird experience of, you know, as things were opening up post pandemic, it was kind of a mix of like, oh my gosh, I can be like around people again and be very social, mm-hmm. but then also in those so- social situations, you know, not quite knowing how to operate. Mm-hmm, and I can think of mm-hmm. as being maybe like the bumblebees being a little overly social sometimes can also be, you know, um, uh, not antisocial in a way, but um, over expression of uh, social behaviors can also be, um, you know, not atypical social behavior. Yes. Um, and how that yeah. can be odd in and of itself. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Cool. Um, Well, that's so interesting. And so then um, I love to hear that because I understand you're like literally about (laughs) to move um, (laughs) and and start your own uh, PI position at uh, the University of Washington. Um, And so I understand you're hoping to study both um, bumblebees and go back to octopuses. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. And um, so, so could you tell me and our listeners, you know, what your what sort of the overarching theme of your your lab's research is, and um, maybe a example or two of of some of the questions you're hoping to address with both of these, like really exciting and um, you know more unique um, model systems um, than a lot of our listeners maybe maybe used to hearing in the field of neuroscience. Yeah, I think one thing that really intrigues me is how the nervous system balances different behavioral paradigms, um, certainly at any one moment, but also especially at the end of life, Um, and how it is that we go through so many transitions, even at the end of life, you know, so as we see in the octopuses, you know, they go from this, um, you know, they'll never leave their, their their eggs to to uh, abstaining from feeding to suddenly um yes i will like totally leave the den and do all these um really uh 
um, showy behaviors and um, yeah, and all of that. And so, you know, these are different kind of behavioral paradigms that are, are balanced and executed at the end of life. And so I'm interested in how that works. And I'm interested in it from the perspective of um, looking at different um, mechanisms in the nervous system and particularly taking um, an evolutionary bent to that. So um, thinking about this in evolutionary context, as well as the, the history of, um, you know, how these different brain areas arose and, um, and looking, you know, at uh, different active death programs. <laughs> so certainly in the octopus, I think it's pretty clear. So I'm, I'll be continuing the line of research um, on, on reproductive death um, and looking really excitingly too in a comparative context. So with other cephalopods mm. um, and uh, within the bees looking at the end of life. So, you know, kind of now looked at the beginning of life and how social behaviors or the social brain might develop. But at the end of life, um, you know, how all of that falls apart. And again, a totally natural part of the bumblebee life cycle um, is that at the end of the summer, so maybe about right now, um, the bumblebee colony, they go through a major switch um, from uh, previously cooperative um, sisters suddenly becoming extremely competitive with each other. Really? Um, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, and and so I'm I'm interested in kind of exploring how that happens, um, and um, looking at um, how the nervous system is mediating that as the colony um, dies naturally. Oh, interesting. Is this may be a totally naive question, but is that related to like who's going to be the next? queen bee or something or is, is um, that completely indirectly. different <laughs> no no it's it's indirectly so it's more about um accessing uh the potential to create um the sorry it's about accessing the potential to pass on your genes and gain an extra little bit of fitness I see. benefit yeah okay yeah. so cool um well that's that all sounds so cool. And I was going to ask, yeah, what other, if you had any, your eye on any like other additional interesting model organisms. So you said other cephalopods, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. such as, can you give us a, a hint? Sure, sure. Yeah. So this summer I'm at the Marine Biological Laboratory and, um, you know, uh, everything that I described in the octopus, um, as I mentioned, you know, this is all due to a part of the nervous system, the neuroendocrine system called the optic glands. And it turns out that all soft-bodied cephalopods have an optic gland. Mm. Um, so this is your cuttlefish and your squids and your bobtail squids. Um, but not all of them mate only once. In fact, there's a really great diversity of reproductive strategies mm. amongst cephalopods. So understanding how does the optic gland operate um, in other cephalopod species, um, you know, that are able to survive first reproduction is something that I'm interested in. And so this summer I got to work with um, Euprimna berii, which is um, a bobtail squid. Um, and in my own lab, I hope to be able to continue this work in um, the striped, the lesser Pacific striped octopus, uh, which is called Octopus churchii. And this is one of the only, so uh, one of uh, two one of a few, I should say. This is one of um, a few species of octopuses known to Western science to be able to mate multiple times. Oh, cool! Um, <laughs> yeah, so uh, that's really that's really yeah, that's so cool. I'm excited to look at that. Yeah, 
Ooh, well, can't wait to <laughs> to hear how that turns out. Um, Thank you. Awesome. Well, I I know we've already been talking for a while, though I don't want to keep you for for too long. But I I was hoping to um, end with um, sort of one or or two, if we have time, kind of bigger questions, more kind of reflecting sure. back on your journey and and thinking forward. Um, so in in all of our interviews, we really like to ask our um, the, the women we're talking to, to talk about if they're comfortable, a particular challenge or, or something that they faced at, at any point, um, in their career, just because often we, we just get sort of the, the, um, you know, the highlight reel <laughs> of the scientists. Mm-hmm. And I think particularly for younger scientists that may be listening to these interviews, I think it can be really helpful and, and inspiring to hear that, um, you know, the, the challenges that, that women have faced and both to see that, you know, if they're facing some of those challenges, they're not alone. Um, as well as, you know, I, I think there's a lot to be gained from hearing that. So, so if you're, if you're able, I'm wondering if you could share a, a particular challenge that, that, that you've come across in your, in your training or career. Yeah. I love that you do this because I think you're right. It's like, if you only hear about highlight reels, um, it begins to feel really impossible, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah, um, sure, I'm happy to ha- kind of share more generally about things that are, like, a little bit farther away from where I'm at right now. But um, I think in graduate school, I mean, graduate school is such a weird time, right? Because yeah. it's so long and you go through so many personal changes. Yeah. Um, it's so wacky. But um, <laughs> I, I remember feeling at multiple times in my graduate career um, exploited by the institution. And I don't, so, I, you know, I don't mean by any, uh, it's not even like any particular person per se, but just looking at the power dynamics between uh, me, a graduate student, as a laborer um, yeah. and a worker um, whose um, intellectual products drive the university, um, and and then the university as this you know multi billion dollar institution that kind of doesn't care if I succeed or not, yeah. right? Or or I should say, if I succeed, um, they care. If I don't, it's through my own um, downfall, right? Yeah. So if I succeed, it's because they have nurtured and supported me and they support fantastic research and fantastic people or whatever. If I fail, it's because there's some shortcoming of mine that right. made me not up to snuff, right? Yeah. And I think Miranda Montgomery um, speaks uh, more in a more nuanced way about this, this idea of the university as static. Um, that was a really huge, I would say, mental drain. Um, and so again, you know, even without speaking of any particular incidents, I think when you live in that context of feeling exploited, um, that takes a huge toll on your creativity, on your intellectualism, on your desire to collaborate and contribute to the community around you. I think living in that kind of environment, which could be an environment of um, fear, right, of fear that something that you find genuinely that you genuinely find exciting in pursuing could be uh, either taken from you or twisted in another way for um, a larger institution's gain. Mm. That's just really scary, um, especially as a young scientist. And so I think that that's something that I've been really sensitive about as I have continued in my career. Um, So 
yeah, I think it's just something that if I if I ever kind of see that happening around me or feel that begin to happen near me, I feel like my like, you know, like my hackles go up yeah. or something like that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, this is, you know, you 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 asked about challenges. And I think this is one of those things that is an ongoing struggle and an ongoing fight with graduate students all around the country. Um, And I think it's one of those things that it doesn't come about from, you know, simple attitude change or, you know, leadership changes or anything like that, but it comes about through community building and alliance building from the bottom up. Um, And I think one of the most beautiful things I saw, so yeah, so hand in hand with one of the most challenging aspects of graduate school is like one of the most beautiful things, which is um, the kind of um, cropping up of communities of, of care. Um, and that included, you know, um, um, affinity groups that I think, um, became much more common, um, as, Mm -hmm. as I progressed in my graduate career. And this included, um, you know, the graduate student union at UChicago. Um, and I will say that I think similarly, I think, communities of care was also really important to um, my uh, successes or I would mm-hmm. say like my my feeling like I could still continue to do this um, during pandemic and you know, in the early stages of, of shutdown and things like that um, with mutual aid organizations and neighbors looking out for neighbors um, yeah. that type of thing is really heartening because it's pretty much all we can do as individuals right in the in the face of these huge behemoths yeah absolutely did you feel did you kind of equally feel that as a postdoc as well or were you more kind of keenly aware of it as a graduate student for one reason or another yeah, I think yes and no. Um, and I'd love to hear what you think about this too. But I think one thing that's weird about the postdoc that I didn't, I think nobody said to me until I was almost out of it is that like, the point of the postdoc is to get another job. And so it's, yeah. and, and it could be a whatever job, right? And so that makes it inherently unstable. Yeah, because you're in transition, and then you've lost your former social network potentially and you're in a new place potentially or in a new system or whatever and that makes you much more vulnerable um, especially because from an institutional standpoint um, well I, I don't know what it was like for you but you know um, in the places that I was at like postdocs come in um, you know kind of whenever and, and there's no kind of um, cohort feeling yeah. that you have with graduates school right and so I think in a sense, institutionally, you're a little more disposable. Um, but of course, since you've kind of gone up a, a rung on the ladder, um, it's also you're poised to make, you know, <laughs> um, you're poised to make, how to put this? Um, <laughs> uh, you, you, it's like you, you have even more skills to make discoveries yeah, that yeah. could, you know, then be, yeah, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. It's something I'm still like thinking about too, still being, well, I guess I'm a year into now. But yeah, there's definitely mm. like in some ways, yeah, I don't quite have words for it yet. It's like in some ways, grad school felt a little bit more, yeah, like you were kind of stuck there and you did have mm-hmm. to, um, you know, produce something at the end. And so there was, you know, potential for exploitation around like through that process but then too I know there's Mm -hmm. a lot of discussion now as a postdoc of sort of even though there's more freedom to leave um, that 
still though it's like well what about for those of us who who don't want to leave but Mm -hmm. so we do want to stay here we're making that choice but kind of what is being sacrificed um for that choice anyway yeah that could be yeah you put it Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. <laughs> no, I was just saying that could be a whole other <laughs> long discussion. But but yeah, I think easy or interesting, interesting things to think about. What were you going to say? Yeah, I was just going to say it's like, you know, um, it's distracting from science when you feel like you have to fight for your rights to to be able to survive, to be able to do the science. Right. It's counterproductive. Yeah. Um, um, and uh, yeah, I, I think you 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 put it really well. So yeah, I think it's just when you become a postdoc, it's a different relationship you have with the institution and with the university. Um, and that comes with it, both pluses and minuses. But I think having an awareness, you know, is, is really important for, um, at least for me, it was really important for, um, for, like sense of self <laughs> yeah, um, and all of that. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. And I, that actually ties kind of nicely to the last like major question I wanted to ask you if, if, if you've got the time, mm-hmm. which yeah, was yeah. that, um, you know, I, I, I noticed on, on your new lab website page that you have a specific page dedicated to lab values. And I think this mm-hmm. is becoming more common, particularly for younger PIs. And I think that's, you know, a wonderful thing that more people are doing that. But I did find yours kind of particularly noteworthy. Um, and and I, some of the things that you have on that page, and I definitely recommend everyone go read it because it's beautifully written. I can now, <laughs> I understand your English major. Um, and But you talk about, I, I think maybe some of the things you talk about in on that page um, connect to some of the things we've been talking about through this conversation and like your um, university and um, the, that course um, that you took in, in college. Um, on your page, you talk about like embracing the tension um, between like doing conscientious science and or the prevailing academic culture in capitalist society, which I thought was really, I, I love that. And I was just wondering mm-hmm. if you could or if, if you, you would like to sort of expound upon that now from the perspective of being a professor now, like after having seen sort of the power that you that someone could hold in a particular position in the American university now, like as you are going to be in that position, sort of mm-hmm. what you're thinking about um, as you start your own lab, um, what you see as like the major some of the major sources of that tension and, and how you're how you're hoping to use your position um, to to uh, address those sources of tension. And, and on your page, you, you talk about do, doing science differently. I was curious if you mm-hmm. can talk, talk a little bit more about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, for me, I think it's not just the interesting questions to pursue, but it's how we go about doing it. Because I think it's really important that as we grow as people and as scientists, um, it's really, I feel that it's really important not to enact the same hardships or replicate hardships that have held you back as an individual onto others. Um, And I think that unless you really take a critical eye at that um, and an active stance against that, that it, it becomes 
too easy to fall into those traps, right? Because the models around us, the models that we see, um, you know, the, um, the science, you know, like the, I'm trying to uh, like politely put to words some of these tropes, right? But, you know, just being, being at the bench, um, you know, forever at all hours of the night yeah. or, you know, um, dying at your desk or something like that, right? Um, these are tropes that have benefited some and exploited many. Yeah. Um, and I think that for me, as I become a PI, so one, A, it's like just not a lifestyle that's for me, right? But also yeah. I think it's important that I, I I am active in countering that because otherwise um, it's too easy just to do the thing that you know or mm-hmm. do the thing that you've seen. Um, so, so I think that's what I mean by doing science differently is that as much as I value and as much as I love the scientific questions that I am privileged to be able to study, I value treating people well and doing things, um, you know, pursuing science with moral clarity. Um, and um, I think that there are, well, so first there are many more people who have spoken um, much more eloquently about the challenges of doing science um, under capitalism and especially with funding um, the way that it is. Yeah. And the important thing here is to, Remember to constantly stretch your imagination and be able to flex creativity because like when we're in a system for so long, you begin to get the message that this is the only way to do things. Um, and so as I become a PI, you know, one thing that I'm interested in is just experimenting with different ways to do things, you know, mm-hmm. prioritizing the um, the safety and well-being um, of those who are in my lab um, to the extent that I can as a mentor, um, which I think will, um, I, which I think will, you know, uh, benefit them as, as people and also the science in the long run. Um, so um, I'm trying to remember kind of what the heart of your question was. I'm sorry. No, that was, We're just that having was a nice chat. Yeah, We're having no, like that a nice was chat. absolutely <laughs> it. Just, I just kind of wanted you to talk yeah. more about it. <laughs> sure, <laughs> sure. Yeah. Oh, and I'll say, yeah. And, uh, you know, I'll say another thing or uh, in another capacity, you know, as I become a professor is that I am uh, in a new teaching capacity, mm-hmm. right? Uh, which is a relationship that I, I didn't have with students when I was, you know, for example, a postdoc. So one thing here, and, and again, I'm drawing from um, Dr. Shelley Wong and Dr. Derek Chang. Um, so a course that I'm developing and bringing to the University of Washington is a course called Racism in Neuroscience. And oh. I think that for me, um, uh, teaching this course and also researching and, and um, in the future engaging in dialogue with students on this course is really important because um, again, it's important that we as scientists take a critical look at the role that our science has taken in perpetuating extremely harmful um, uh, stereotypes yeah. and enacting um, certain uh, social paradigms that have uh, that have been detrimental to uh, you know certain groups of people. Um, and so, I think that for me, that's a really exciting thing, right? Because becoming a professor doesn't mean just running a lab to me. Um, It also means like learning and understanding and exploring this new dimension of interacting with young scholars um, in creative spaces, including spaces that I think can be really productive and really generative for um, having conversations that can lead to cultural change. 
And I think that, you know, we have to start small, start local. Um, so I'm excited to kind of um, debut that class this winter. Oh, that's amazing. That's so, yeah, that sounds like such a important, interesting course, both to be producing from your perspective as well as to, to take as your future students. Um, and I just want to say, too, like as, uh, you know, someone still in a training phase, it's so nice and refreshing to hear new like incoming PIs like you who are thinking so thoughtfully about, you know, all of all of these things and how to, you know, do science differently and, and make things better. So, um, so yeah, they, I'm very excited both about your research to come out of your lab as well as everything else. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much, Megan. Yeah. Um, so just to wrap up, I'll, I'll end with, we like ending with just a very fun, lighthearted question after a more, you know, meaty, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. substance through the interview, which is, and I'll give you two options. Um, okay. and you can, I mean, answer both if you like them both or, or just choose one. Um, the options are one, if you weren't a neuroscientist, what would you be doing? Um, it sounds mm -hmm. like you might have many answers for that one. Mm -hmm. Um, and the second is, um, just what do you like to do for fun or to unwind or relax? Um, I, I will, uh, I think I'll answer the second one. <laughs> All right. <laughs> um, yeah, it probably won't come as a surprise, but I really enjoy reading, mm. um, <laughs> um, as well as, you know, taking hikes with the dog and, and, <laughs> uh, hanging out with my cats and all that. But I think, um, yeah, so I, I love reading and most more recently, I think what I've really loved is, um, kind of getting into uh like young adult fiction oh so yeah so you know this was obviously a genre that I cared a lot about when I was a young adult <laughs> but I think as I as I get older I'm like wow like it's so cool that people really cared about like you know like preteen girls in a way to 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 write specifically to them and hmm. um so what i just read is a really fantastic graphic novel called tide song by wendy Xu. wendy Xu. um and it's it's super cool it's a graphic novel about a about a young witch mermaid who wants to learn how to do magic um just really <laughs> fun and something that i think you know it's it's lighthearted and it it um is a it's completely different than what I kind of do on a day-to-day -day and brings more balance in my life. Oh, that's awesome. That sounds very fun and a, a great way to unwind or relax. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, this has been such... Um... This has been such a nice conversation, at least from my perspective. Hopefully you've had fun too. Um, yeah, again, just very excited for everything to come. And um, yeah, thank you for participating in our project too. We're excited to share it. Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun for me as well, Megan.